So good morning, welcome to Calvary Church in Brighton. This is our morning service and I really pray and hope that you will be blessed joining with us in our service today. I've got a, a few um, notices and requests to bring at the beginning. So before we actually get stuck in, I'd like to read a verse from Scripture, which is found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Actually, let's read verses 12 and 13. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Strong challenge, uh, strong exhortation and encouragement in the word of God to the kind of living which befits a Christian, the kind of behavior which, is, uh, which should be found in a Christian community. God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved. This idea of compassion, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with each other, forgiving each other and putting on love. You know, I, I find it difficult to be patient. I'm not naturally a patient person. And there are times when I behave in ways which are not worthy of the gospel. And I'm sure it's true for many of us. But I would encourage all of us to ask the Lord to help us to put, us, put this into practice in our daily lives. And no more so than during this crisis when we're not physically able to meet together as we used to. Particularly this, this bit about forgiveness. If there's anything that needs to be forgiven, if there's anything that needs to be put right, a relationship that needs to be mended, let us do it. Let us ask the Lord to help us. It's not easy. But when we look at the cross of our Lord Jesus, we look at what he was willing to suffer, how he prayed for his persecutors, for his murderers, that God would forgive them. There's really no price that's too much for us to pay. There's no limit to, to what we can forgive. So I just urge you and encourage you and all of us to be patient, to be humble, to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. And he's forgiven us a huge debt. Second practical piece of advice and exhortation and encouragement is this. I really want to encourage you this week, if you haven't done so, to make contact with another Christian brother or sister, particularly in the church, particularly someone that you don't normally have much contact with, if any contact with. So pick up the phone or write an email, but preferably pick up the phone or make contact in some way and encourage somebody. Pray for them, tell them that you're praying for them and then go away and pray about them. It's very important that we, we build these bonds in the church and strengthen these bonds, which are under pressure in some ways at this time when we can't be together. And you know, it can be such, such a blessing for somebody to get a call, to know that somebody in the church is thinking about them, praying for them, has been proactive in that way. We all 
failed to do this, I'm sure, as, as well as we could. But let's, let's try to do that this week. Find somebody. It's on your heart. Contact them. Encourage them. It's a very important thing, isn't it, to encourage each other. Speaking of which, may I encourage you to also, if possible, try to attend our prayer meetings and other meetings online. Try to come to our services or watch our services. I know it's not always possible. I know sometimes you're exhausted after work. I know sometimes you may not feel like it, you feel a bit down. I know sometimes Zoom is not your cup of tea. And to be honest, it's not my cup of tea either. I'm, I'm, the, most, I'm the biggest technophobe in the church, probably. Even, even a microwave oven confuses me. That's what I'm like. But somehow this is the best we've got at the moment. I know there are people that find it difficult, they have technical problems, but let's try to come together, let's try to encourage each other. Don't make it not being your cup of tea be the reason that you don't join with your brothers and sisters in prayer. It's so important that we set an example for each other by coming, showing this is important, and by encouraging each other. Just by coming on something, to see your face, to hear your voice, the ability to hear other people's prayers and needs, and to pray for them is such an important thing in the kingdom of God. So try to make that if you possibly can. I know it's not always possible, but it's good. It's good to be together. It's good to encourage each other, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be gracious to each other, to extend the forgiveness that you have shown us to each other, We pray, Lord, you'd help us to be merciful, kind, and patient. And please, would you forgive us when we haven't been those things. Thank you, Lord, that you have forgiven us an enormous debt, a debt we could never repay ourselves, a debt which separated us from you. And yet, Lord, you have have made that right. You have cancelled that debt. The Lord Jesus Christ has taken that penalty upon himself so that we can be forgiven. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be full of the love and mercy of Christ. Please help us, Lord, to be proactive in our encouragement of each other and our love for each other. Help us, Lord, to consider others better than we consider ourselves, to esteem them better than we esteem ourselves, in a sense, Lord, to really care for each other's needs. So, Lord, help us as we meet together today It's not ideal. We know this is not a perfect way of doing things. We would far rather be together, but we can't be. So Lord, help us and help your people all over the world who are meeting this day, either online like this or perhaps in some places physically. We pray you'd bless them as they come together to worship you and hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing a song which helps I think, get us into the right place as we come to worship the Lord. It's number 166, I believe. The words will be on the screen as usual. In awe and wonder, Lord our God. Let's sing.
now I would like to read today's reading from Scripture, which is to be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Reading from the New International Version, as usual. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 to 31. I was thinking of doing the whole chapter today, but that would have been a bit ambitious. So I thought we'd just take this section. But I do encourage you, if you can, to read the whole section, the whole chapter, at your leisure, because it's important to take these verses in context. And I'll be referring to different parts of the chapter, but these are the verses we're looking at today, so let me read. So actually we'll read from verses 25 to 31. Paul writes, now about virgins, I have no command from from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. For those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world, of the world, as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. Let me lead you again in a prayer as we come before the Lord, as we seek to understand his word to us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we've we've sung beautiful words about your majesty, about your glory. Lord, as we come now to to read your word and to hear your word, to ponder your word, we want to start right away by saying that our biggest concern is for your glory, that you, O God, should be glorified, you should be seen and acknowledged for who you are, as who you are. Father, we also want that your, we we desire that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, should be worshipped and should be praised, should be magnified as he ought to be. Lord, we acknowledge that there was nothing in us that naturally made us want to worship you or to submit to you or to love you. Lord, which is a strange thing to say because we know what a wonderful God you are and how worthy you are of praise, but such was the wickedness of our hearts, Lord, that we didn't have any desire to do that. Thank you, Lord, that as Christian people, you've changed our hearts. It's not because we were any more likely than anybody else to turn to you and believe in you and worship you, but you have drawn us to yourself. You've called us. You've made us part of your chosen and holy people. And we are glad to worship you. 
we're glad to bow the knee before you. We're glad, Lord, to, to live our lives as imperfectly as we do to your glory and in your service. Father, you know the difficulty that I've had wrestling with these words. Perhaps there, there are some who listen to this who, who understand them very easily, but for me, Lord, to understand the context and the meaning and for me to, to avoid inadvertently misleading your people has been a struggle, Lord. But I do feel that these are the, these are the verses that you've put on my heart to bring today for your people here in, in Calvary and perhaps even beyond. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us now as we come to your word. I pray, Lord, you would give us ears to hear. Lord, it's so easy for your word just to wash over us with no conviction. But Lord, I pray that you would not let any of us be unchanged by the preaching of your word today. Lord, who is sufficient for these things? Please give me words and clarity the ability to bring something which is so encouraging for your people, so necessary, something which builds up everyone from the weakest to the strongest, that your body, might, your people might be equipped for works of service, that our hearts might be brought to the right place before you, and we might see even a glimpse of your glory today. I do want to pray for every single person who's listening to this in their homes or wherever they are, that you would draw close to them, Help us, Lord, not to switch off. Help us, help us, Lord, not to let your word just wash over us. We've heard it so many times before, but help us, Lord, today to truly engage with the living God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, as I was thinking about what to preach on, I, as I said in my prayer, I really feel the Lord has laid upon my heart these words to bring to us as a church. And it's not been easy. I mean, when we look at the Apostle Paul and what he wrote and what is recorded for us in Scripture, very often we have to do some, some spade work. We have to, to dig into the context and into the culture of the time and the various situations that Paul and the Christians faced. And also perhaps even into the, the Greek language in which this was written originally to try to understand as best we can what Paul is saying and to interpret it in a way which is helpful for us. So I pray that you'll bear with me today and I pray if, if there are there is any misunderstanding that you will be able to either speak to me or speak to somebody else or do your own research, your own study to clarify these matters. There's a question I want every single person who hears this today to ask themselves. There's a song by the 60s rock pop band, The Kinks, called Dead End Street. I don't know if you know this song. It's a kind of jaunty song, but it's a bit depressing because the singer basically is moaning about his miserable life and the miserable circumstances in which he finds himself living on Dead End Street. 
And there's a line in that song which gives, in a way, the question I want us to ask today, which is the question that every single person in the world would do well to ask. I fear that many don't ask this question. What are we living for? What are we living for? What am I living for? What gives my life a sense of meaning and purpose? What is my motivation for even getting up in the morning? What makes my life meaningful, significant? What do I want out of life? What am I aiming for? What am I working towards? Am I just drifting along aimlessly? Is there no particular meaning? What am I giving my energy, attention, my emotions, my best efforts to? What are we living for? Isn't this crisis a good time for us to ask these kind of questions if we haven't done so? So many things that that seem so certain, that seemed as though they would go on in the same way forever, have been shaken. And things may never, ever be the same again in some ways. So many old assumptions have been stripped away. And this crisis, like all crises, is an opportunity for us to carry out an audit, in a way, of our lives for our perspective to be changed, for us to to think about what is really important. What are we living for? When Paul wrote these words thousands of years ago, he and his Christian friends were also facing a crisis. It wasn't coronavirus. We don't exactly know what the crisis was, but we read about it, don't we, in verse 26. Of this chapter. Paul talks about this present crisis. The actual word he used, I believe, in the Greek means something which causes you pressure, which presses down upon you. Some versions of the Bible translate it as this current distress. But it's a crisis. What was this crisis? Well, we can't be sure exactly what it was, most people believe it was a wave of severe persecution which came upon the church not 15 years, give or take a few years, after these words were written. It's very possible that Paul could see the clouds gathering on the horizon and he wanted to prepare the church for the trials that lay ahead. and In in a sense, to put them on a war footing, to put them on red alert make sure they were ready to face whatever was coming. We need to understand this chapter, when Paul writes about marriage, it's, it can be confusing. It's not something that many churches or pastors delve into. It can be controversial and it can be easily misunderstood. But we need to be to be aware that when Paul writes these words, there are commands and there are strict standards that he lays down, but a lot of this is in the category of good advice. 
wise, fatherly, loving advice to Christians. So Paul is not just laying down rules and commands in many cases here. He's actually giving advice. He says that, doesn't he, in verse 25, I have no command for the Lord. In other words, he had no specific recollection of Jesus talking about this particular subject. But he gives a judgment. He gives advice. He gives principles. In this chapter, Paul has already spoken about the benefits of singleness. I know for some of you, singleness is a big issue. Some of you who are listening to this would dearly like to find a life partner, a husband or a wife. Some of you may feel that 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 boat has passed you by, but you would have dearly loved to have met somebody when you were younger. Paul does speak about the rightness of marriage. Paul nowhere diminishes the importance of marriage or disparages marriage. In fact, he says, you know, every, every man should have his own wife and every wife should have her own husband. So in general, marriage is a blessing, a creation ordinance. We know, of course, that marriage is much under attack, much undermined in our society. But Paul does talk about the benefits, the advantages of singleness. He also talks about the wisdom, the rightness of remaining in the situation to which God has called you. Paul allows that marriage is permissible. If you've married, if you choose to marry, you have not sinned. But he does say in verse 28, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. Now, we need to remember that Paul is specifically talking in the context of looming persecution. And you can imagine, if you were married or considering getting married at a time like that, it may have been prudent and wise to put that on the back burner or even completely forego that because of the difficult times that lay ahead. You can imagine the challenges that you would face, the additional challenges as a married man having to look after a wife and probably children in persecution. There are many stories of Christians who were martyred and persecuted in the Roman Empire and husbands and wives who were separated because of this persecution and You can imagine the sadness, the sorrow of seeing your husband or wife being taken away and put to death or being made to suffer. Paul perhaps has this in mind, so I want to spare you this. But also I think in the context of that persecution, Paul seems to be suggesting that single life, a life of singleness, would enable you to perhaps better cope with the rigours and the trials of that difficult time coming without the additional burden and distraction of having to provide for a family and look after them and protect them. And uh, in terms of your relationship with God, that kind of focus that you might need to get through that difficult period or to to face persecution, it might have been better to have that single-mindedness that he already says is, is easier 
when you are single. It's very important, and I haven't got time to go into this today, and I would love to do a series on this or really kind of grapple with this teaching. It's important for churches to teach a biblical, scriptural, balanced view of marriage and singleness and to encourage young people not to try to put them off getting married, but to to think about some of these issues. Marriage is a blessing. Marriage is a gift from God. But it's not a golden idol to be pursued at all costs. And it's not wrong to want to be married. If, If you have that desire in you, then that is a legitimate desire. But we do need to make sure that we don't portray singleness as somehow being second class in the church. And I can see some of my single friends, they have that that ability to go where they want and do what they want and serve the Lord in a way that we married people perhaps don't find so easy because we have a family to care for. We have responsibilities that they don't have. Paul clarifies his position. Go back to the text, verse 29. What I mean, brothers is that the time is short. The word he uses there is not the word chronos, which talks about time in general, but time in terms of its duration. He uses the word kairos, which I believe means, is used to refer to a particular time. The time is coming. You would use the word kairos to talk about a specific time. When he says the time is short, the the idea is that it has been shortened, it has been constricted, it has been cut short to this appointed time. The time before that comes has been shortened. Now, there's been a lot of debate about what Paul means here, what, what he's referring to, and he could be easily talking about the brevity of human life, the shortness of human life. You know, I'm, I'm a 40 next year. I think the average life expectancy in this country for a man, I think, is, is about 80 years old. Of course, life goes very quickly. Paul senses the trouble difficult days lies ahead. And he's putting the church, as I said, on a war footing, putting them on red alert, putting them in a position to face whatever might be coming. But I don't think that Paul is just talking here about the brevity of human life. I don't think he's just talking about a particular crisis, although there obviously was a crisis, and that did colour his thinking. I don't think it was a matter of him saying, well, you know, when the crisis is over, go back to as you were, be engrossed by the world, with the world. Go back to living as though the things of this world belong to you and were yours to keep. I don't think he's, he's saying that. I think he's talking about the general position that Christians should be in, the, the general stance and attitude of Christians in the last days, which in biblical terms is the season that, stretches from from the return of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the Pentecost, all the way to his final return. So we are in the last days. 
I think that Paul had in mind here not just persecution, not just the shortness of human life, but I think he's talking in eschatological terms. He's talking about the things at the end. Look at verse 31. The world in its present form is passing away. In other words, Paul says, the world as we know it, the world that we see around us, all things that we see and hear and touch and observe and take part in, all of this will not remain the same forever. All of it has had its day. It's passing away. It's on the way out. This is not because of some climate catastrophe, some disaster, some war. This is not something that humans have caused. This is not something that humans can prevent. There are plenty of people that believe that somehow the world will end as a result of human intervention, human folly. And somehow humans might just possibly have the capacity to put things right. If we, we all go back to you know, the Middle Ages and live in straw huts and give up driving cars and, and being facetious. But the end that Paul is talking about here, the passing away, is not a human problem. It's a problem for humans, but it's not something that humans have created. It's not something that humans can prevent. And unlike, you know, Extinction Rebellion and the end of all things as people fear it may be, this this end is not to be dreaded. It's not to be feared. It's not to be prevented. It's something that inevitably will happen as God works out his salvation purposes and brings all of history to a climax where his son, the Lord Jesus, is worshipped, glorified universally. I think it's very possible that Paul, during the crisis of his day, felt that things were getting so bad that this perhaps was ushering in the end. Of course, Jesus himself talks about severe persecution of the church in the last days. And perhaps Paul saw that persecution coming on the horizon and he he thought, well, this must be the end. This must be the end of all things. Christ is surely coming. The problem is, 2,000 years down the line, it's very easy for us, isn't it, to think that Paul was perhaps mistaken because he believed in the imminency of Christ's return. What do I mean by the imminency of Christ's return? The imminence, I mean mean the, the, the idea that, that Christ could come at any time, that the things were really sure, that the end was soon coming. And that, that theme is, is throughout the whole of the New Testament. In all, almost all the letters, the apostles, the writers of the New Testament pick up this theme of the imminence of the return of Christ, the, the urgency, the, the need for expectancy, the need for alertness, the need for Christian holy living. But we could conclude that Paul was wrong. You know, he said it was coming soon, and 2,000 years later, here we are. The world hasn't passed away. It's changed a lot, but it's still basically the same world. People are still basically the same. Can anybody really take seriously the idea that Jesus is coming back? The Lord Jesus will come back in, his, in a body, in a, in a way which is universally visible, to judge his enemies, to save his people, to rule and to reign and to be glorified. I want to encourage all of us not to fall into the trap 
of saying that we believe the Lord Jesus is coming, but not really believing it in our heart of hearts. Peter, in one of his letters, he predicts prophetically that in the last days, people will scoff at the idea of the coming of Jesus. Look at this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Above all, you must understand, says Peter, that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffers are people that mock. Scoffing, following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So Peter says, in the last days, there will be people that mock the idea of this world passing away, of Christ coming. Because to them, it appears that he's taking too long. And then Peter goes on to say, well, you know, with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. In God's economy, it's not actually that long at all. And God is patient with this world. He gives people a chance to repent and turn to him. But what difference would it make to us, to our Christian lives, to the church, if we lived with this sense of the imminence of Christ's return? We live with this sense of the urgency, the suddenness of his appearing. Several times in scripture, Jesus says, I will come like a thief in the night. Nobody knows when that will be. And the call is to be ready. How would it affect that question, what am I living for? If we really believed, we really believed that Christ was coming back. Well, Paul, in this section, he mentions, I think, five areas of human life which are common to all people or most people. It's not an exhaustive list, but it covers a lot of bases and you could add almost anything to this list, any kind of human activity. And Paul puts them in the light of the crisis and of the return of Christ and, and of the, the reality that the world in its present form is passing away. So what are these five areas? Well, we're looking at verses 29 to 31. And they are, first of all, marriage, then, then sorrow, sorrowing, then rejoicing, possessions, finally dealing with the world in general. The first thing we need to notice is that Paul doesn't say that Christians should stop doing these things. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that because the Lord Jesus Christ is coming, because difficult days lie ahead, that we should actually stop physically or try to stop doing these things. Go, go and live on an island in the Hebrides somewhere or go in a monastery, try and cut ourselves off from the world completely more contact with non-believers and things that could defile us or cause us to be worldly. He's already said in verse 27, if you're married, don't seek a divorce. So we need to, to be so careful when we unpack these verses that we don't just take them out of context or any verse out of context and run away with it. We need to put them in the context of the chapter, the book, 
and the whole of Scripture, if we're to understand them correctly. Obviously, people, they can't stop buying things. You need to buy things to survive in this world. Perhaps sometimes we buy things that we don't really need, but buying things is part of everyday human life. And Paul doesn't say stop doing that. In fact, as, we, as I'm speaking these words, my wife has popped down on the road and she's, she's no doubt doing a bit of shopping down there. Paul doesn't say you should stop doing that. And Paul doesn't say we should stop experiencing emotions. I mean, you have to be a pretty strange kind of person to not feel any emotions at all, not, not to feel any sadness, not to feel any happiness, just to go through life like some kind of sociopath. That, that's the word, isn't it? Some kind of zombie. He doesn't have any feelings. He's not affected by this world and by life and by its joys and, and triumphs and sorrows and things that go on around us. And I don't think that's how God wants us to live. We're not wired up that way. That's not how humans work and operate. And if they do, there's something that's wrong. We're flesh and blood people. We have to buy and sell. We have to eat. We have to go to work. And we do feel. We do experience emotions. And we do get married. We do have families. We belong to churches. We have grandchildren. Paul doesn't say any of that is wrong. What Paul does introduce us to is a concept which is perhaps a little bit difficult for us to get our heads around. I've really tried to look into this and try to understand it, and I hope that I can explain as best I can what I think Paul is talking about. So he introduces us to this concept of doing things as though you are not doing them. Of having things as though you are not having them. He doesn't say stop doing them. He says you do these things as though you are not doing them. I think if you had to put it in a nutshell, what Paul is saying is, as a Christian, although you engage with this world, and that's inevitable, that's unavoidable, the Christian has a certain detachment from this world, an emotional and spiritual detachment in a way that non-believers do not have. The Christian knows that this world is a temporary situation. It's important, it's good in many ways, and there's, there's work to be done here. We're not to cut ourselves off, we're not to withdraw. But the Christian also knows that he is an alien and a stranger in the world. When I say an alien, I don't mean a little green man from outer space. I'm talking about a foreigner, in a sense. Somebody that doesn't really belong here. Somebody that is walking, moving towards the celestial city, the heavenly city. Somebody that is you know, at home here in one sense, and yet not at home here. The Christian, our citizenship is in heaven. We're like somebody who's, who's emigrated to a foreign country but always longs and plans one day to go back to the country where they feel they truly belong. So they, whilst they live in that country, they go to work, they, they do, do the things that all the citizens of that country do, or most things, but yet at the same time they're, they're longing to be back in their homeland where they belong, surrounded by familiar and beloved 
things. You've got that kind of dichotomy, that, that paradox, that, that tension between being where I am now and being where I truly want to be, not despising where I am now, engaging with that place, like you know the exiles in Babylon who were called to build homes and settle and seek the good of the city, and yet at the same time longing for Jerusalem, longing to go back to the promised land. If you were stranded on a deserted island, perhaps you'd been in a shipwreck or more likely these days a plane crash and you'd landed on some island and it was a tropical paradise. You had, you know, parrots and exotic trees and coconuts and tropical fish and coral reefs. You know, a bit like, um, I was going to say Lord of the Flies, perhaps a better example would be Robinson Crusoe. You end up on this island as nice as the island may be, you dearly want to be rescued and reunited with your loved ones. And perhaps with your, your last mobile phone battery, before it dies, you, you make a call. I don't know if that's even possible, but somehow you contact the outside world. You say, here I am, here's my coordinates, please come and rescue me. And you hear the reassuring message that, yes, we will come and rescue you. We know where you are. We don't know how long it's going to take to get there. It's dangerous for our aircraft to travel this way. Look out for us. We'll come at a certain day, but we don't know when that will be. But keep your spirits up and keep looking out for us. If that were you, how would you spend the rest of your days on that island? Well, of course, you would still go fishing every day for your food. And you'd still eat coconuts probably and whatever other fruit grew on the island and you would still enjoy swimming in the sea and the golden sands of the beaches looking at the turtles or whatever lives there but you wouldn't be at home on the island and you would still do the things you needed to live but you'd always be looking out for that boat or the plane or whatever it was the helicopter coming to pick you up longing for that day counting the days when you'd be reunited with your family. You wouldn't get too at home on that island. You wouldn't start building a big you know, tree house or some kind of complex there because you know that that island's passing away for you. It's not your permanent home. But I think that's a bit like the Christian in this present age. Someone said this about these verses. I think it was Spurgeon. He said, Christian enjoys these things and participates in these activities of life and yet he doesn't try to find his heaven in these things. Dear friends, we can never put down deep roots in this world. We do put down roots in, in a sort of way. We settle in a city or a town and we have a home. But we, don't, we should be careful we don't put down roots too deeply because this is not our final destiny. This is not our destination. This is not our true home. Let's look at these verses. I won't go into them too deeply, but I hope you get the sense of what Paul is talking about. So the first activity that Paul talks about is marriage. Verse 29. He said, those who have wives should live as if they had none. I'm sure he's talking about husbands and wives. Now, I can imagine 
if my wife were here, I'm quite glad she's gone out, she would probably say, well, that's exactly how my husband lives, the amount of time he actually spends in the house helping me. I think she would have a wry smile on her face when she said it. But I want to be very clear about this. And this is a classic verse that people can take out of context, get into all sorts of trouble. Paul is not saying here, he cannot be saying that if you have a wife, if you're married, that you should neglect your wife, that you should no longer take care of your wife, that you should ignore your wife. In, earlier in the chapter, in verse 3, he talks about wives and husbands fulfilling their marital duty to each other. He's talking about physical relations. So Paul is clearly not saying that you completely live as though you didn't have a wife. You completely ignore your spouse. You don't, don't have any consideration of their needs. In Ephesians 5, Paul, on another occasion, talks about a husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church. Loving his wife as he loves his own body, feeding and caring for it. And all throughout scripture, the sanctity of Christian marriage and marriage in general is is held very high, very highly. And the duties of marriage, love, modeling Christ in the church, that beautiful relationship in heaven, which marriage is a picture of, those things are always advocated in Scripture and commanded in Scripture. It wouldn't be right, would it, for me to take this verse and begin to shun my wife and family that God has entrusted to my care. So I thought of a few humorous scenarios that if you took this verse out of context, you might end up getting into. So this does not mean that I come home from work, my children clamoring to see me, wanted to talk about their day, wanted to talk about, I don't know, poor Patrol, whatever it is they want to talk about. It doesn't mean that I slam the door in their face, go in my room because I want to pray for hours and hours. This does not mean that when my wife asks me to do some chore in the house to help her, to, to take in the washing or to hoover the house, that I say, no, sorry, love. I'm too busy meditating on the word of God. I cannot spend any time with you today. It doesn't mean that when my children are hungry, my wife and I completely ignore them because we're too busy locked away in some room listening to worship music. It doesn't mean when my wife wants or needs a chat, she needs some encouragement, some affirmation. She wants me to pray with her, to listen to her, perhaps to give her a cuddle, for me to tell her that I love her. It doesn't mean that I, I turn my back on her because Paul says I ought to live as though I had no wife. Paul does say, doesn't he, that a crisis is coming. And he already said that in some ways it's, it's easier for a single person to be fully devoted to the Lord because a married person does have responsibilities and does have cares which a single person doesn't have. And it's right, it's right for a married person to look after their family, care for their family, shepherd their family. But Paul does, I think what Paul does, does mean, what he does say is this, that since you are married, and since you need to stay married, if you are married, 
you, in a sense, need to make sure that you are as focused as possible on the Lord Jesus, that your marriage doesn't become a distraction from serving the Lord. Sacrificially serving your family honours the Lord, if you're a husband or a wife, for that matter. But because of the crisis, because the time was short, because the Lord Jesus is coming back, because difficult days lie ahead, you need to make sure that your marriage is not an idol. You need to make sure that your marriage is not all-consuming, that it becomes a substitute for God. And I I fear sometimes when I, I see young people, particularly it seems young women, who are so desperate to get married that they'll marry almost anybody. And I think, you know, my dear sister, if they're a Christian, you know, do you, re- do you really think that marriage will fulfill your deepest emotional needs? Do you really think that marriage is this kind of panacea to all your problems? And I fear that these people sometimes may be in danger of giving themselves too fully to their husbands or wives. And they become, as I said, become an idol, all consuming, all they can think about, all they're putting their hope in all that takes up their energy, effort, attention and focus. And Paul says, no, you need to be very careful if you are married, not to let that happen, but to maintain your spiritual focus, especially in these days. Dear friends, bear in mind that marriage, as good as it is, what a blessing it is. I'm so glad God has given me a wife. I never thought he would. I didn't think he would even entrust a wife, a woman to me, one of his daughters. But he has by grace. Marriage is a challenge. Marriage is a blessing. But marriage is only for this life. Marriage is temporary. Won't last in the age to come. The Bible is clear about that. And marriage can be, as I've said already, can be ended prematurely. It can be ended by the death of a spouse. Some of you know what that's like. And it can be ended by persecution. Husbands and wives can be separated. You hear stories of husbands being dragged away from their wives and families and spending 40 years in Siberia or something like that in North Korea. Awful suffering. And I think Paul would say, and and my advice as well, I think the Bible would give this advice, is that if you are married, hold on to it lightly. Love your spouse. Love your husband, love your wife, serve them, love your children, but love God more. May Christ be the supreme object of your affections. The purpose of marriage is, is, is a blessing for us, and God does love to bless his children, but the, the ultimate purpose of it is to make you more holy, to make you more like the Lord Jesus, to make you conform to his likeness. A husband and wife are a union, not living for their own pleasure but to serve God together, to encourage each other, to exhort each other, to help each other become more godly and to build the kingdom together as a unit. So Paul, I think, is is simply saying, you know, if you are married, hold it lightly. Take it seriously, but don't grasp it. Don't hold on to it as though it were your own pet idol that, the Lord would never want to take away from you because the reality is it may be taken away from you but you still have the Lord 
And that's what really matters. The second thing that Paul mentions here is about concerning emotions. So in verse 30, those who mourn as if they did not. Perhaps that word mourn could be better translated as weep, cry, feel sorrow. You, you and I know only too well, friends, that Christians, like everybody else, experience grief and sorrow and loss, heartbreak, mourning, disappointment, discouragement, failure, depression. All these things are common to humans, whether they be Christians or not. Many of you have experienced a form of mourning in your life, whether it be for a lost friend, a lost parent, a lost dream, a lost child, a lost church perhaps, perhaps a church that you love dearly closed down, perhaps your lost health or your lost youth. And these things can weigh heavily upon us. When Paul says that we should mourn as though we did not mourn, he's, I don't think he could be saying that we, we should somehow put on a brave face, you know, stiff up a lip, you know, sort of an Englishman never cries sort of thing in public, never shows any emotion. I don't think Paul's saying that at all. It can be a very dangerous thing to suppress grief. Paul actually, in other places, talks about Christians weeping and mourning for loved ones. But the difference is, as Christians, or it should be, is that although we do grieve, and although it's, it's right and normal to grieve, we do not grieve like the rest of people that have no hope. When we suffer loss, we have a realistic view of it. We have a heavenly perspective. We know that loss and sorrow is part of this human existence. We have a great hope. We have the God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles. We have a destiny and a future, an inheritance of which, in which sorrow and grief is not part of it. I don't think Christians should be completely incapacitated by grief and sorrow, like some people are. We don't completely lose our faith. We don't fall apart. Think about fallen soldiers on the battlefield. So I'm sure when soldiers are killed in conflicts, their comrades and their friends weep for them. They mourn for them. They miss their mates. But it doesn't stop those soldiers, I think, in most cases from continuing to fight in that cause. It doesn't completely devastate them. They know when they sign up to be soldiers that they may possibly die and their mates may possibly die as well. Soldiers who, who lose their comrades don't completely lose heart. They don't just give up the fight because their loved ones, their friends, have been taken or fallen in battle. And in the same way, we Christians, when we, when we lose loved ones, whether they're martyred, they're put to death, 
for the sake of Christ, whether they just die a natural death or in some tragedy. As painful and heartbreaking as that is, I don't want to minimize that for a moment. We don't give up. We don't lose heart. In some ways, it's an occupational hazard being a Christian. There's a real risk that we may lose our lives. And of course, we, we know nothing of that in this country at the moment, at the present time. But it is a reality for many people. But one thing we do experience is grief. We do, we do mourn and we do weep. I think back to my losses in my life, my griefs, my failures, my disappointments, and they've probably been quite minor compared to what some of you have experienced. But I remember going away deeply sad, saddened and discouraged by things. But I remember going away and praying to the Lord and saying, say, Lord, you know, this has been very difficult. This has been very sad. But I've still got you. And I know that you love me. I know that you won't let me go. Father, that's what really matters because you are my greatest treasure. Whatever else is taken away from me, nothing can take you away from me. Nothing can take me away from you. And the good news is we, we, don't, we don't mourn in that way. We do mourn, but we, we mourn as if we do not mourn because we know that our grief will be taken away one day. It's part of the passing world. It's part of this world that is passing away. It won't always be like this for Christians, for believers. For non-believers who don't turn to the Lord Jesus, grief will be part of your eternity, weeping and gnashing of teeth, very sadly, suffering. For the believer, weak, troubled, burdened, sorrowful, yet rejoicing. We are destined to receive and inherit a kingdom where God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And quoting Revelation, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. There's that picture there of things passing away. This gives us that ability to rejoice, to know joy, even when we mourn. And then Paul goes on to talk about another emotion here. He says, those who are happy as if they were not. You can imagine, can't you, the, somebody taking this out of context, just taking this verse by itself and using this as a justification for Christians going around with you know, miserable faces, never smiling. You know, I'm not allowed to be happy. I'm not allowed to show any sense of joy and happiness. But I don't think that's what Paul means. Think about the many blessings that God has given us in this life. Things which he has richly given us for our enjoyment, which are not sinful things. Part of this good world that God has made. And you, you can make your own list, but I, I listed, you know, friends and celebrations, good times, fun, laughter, beauty, creativity, art, music, holidays, nature, all these things are blessings that Christians and non-Christians can enjoy. But the difference, I think, is that non-believers who have this, this underlying mentality that let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
They know they're going to die. And because of that, they, they try to cram as much sensual pleasure into this short life as possible. They try to invest all their emotional energy into finding pleasure and meaning in these kinds of things that I've mentioned. And that is not the Christian way. Even though we do enjoy these things, we have a certain detachment from them. I noticed this phenomenon, I mentioned this before, amongst people my age and people who are younger. Perhaps it's simply a matter of us having better cameras and better technology these days. The young people seem to be so fixated about having experiences, filling your life with experiences. And, of course, younger people today, before the crisis anyway, before the coronavirus, had much more opportunities to travel and see the world. And they love to cram their life full of this stuff and then take photos of it, hundreds of photos, put it all over social media in, in some kind of vain attempt to capture that moment. You know, this moment was just too good to last. We can somehow keep it alive by taking photos of it and preserving it and showing all our friends how happy and successful we are and how wonderful our lives are. One of the most poignant things you can do is to go to somebody's old house, look through their photos, you know, see the photos on the wall, look through old photo albums and see moments like this frozen in time the clothes we used to wear, the hairstyles, people that have gone, and you realise, my goodness, life goes very quickly. Things are changing. Life is fleeting. Dear friends, it's, it's so right for us to get a balanced view of this. We should enjoy, to, to, to a great extent, the good things that God has given us. But they are part of the world that is passing away. Let us enjoy them. Let us give this thanks to God for them. For his provision. He gives us richly everything for our enjoyment. But let us not set our heart on these things. These experiences that make us happy. Our deepest joy is not found in any of them. Our sense of well-being is not to be found in these things that make people happy. Christians should not be addicted to pleasure. We don't live just for pleasure, just to please ourselves, to please our flesh. Christians, although we should be the most joyful people in the world, we have great reasons to rejoice, don't we? We don't have this kind of foolish levity, frivolous attitude that some people have. that They don't take anything too seriously. Life is all about having fun and entertainment and pleasure. And even some Christians live with this kind of levity, this frivolousness. We have a right kind of sobriety about us, a soberness, a seriousness, and yet a joyful seriousness, that perfect balance. We know that there are important things in this world. Life is not just a game. When I was younger, I used to really love football. Every other weekend, I would go and watch a team play with my friends and if the team won, I was really happy for the whole weekend. And if they lost, I was miserable and depressed. You know, I still like football. still enjoy it. It's a good spectacle. Gets me out of the house. Keeps me out of mischief. But, you know, a few years after I became a Christian, I went to watch a football match. One of my friends had tickets 
Norwich City, my team, we went to, up to Norwich and watched the game, and I think Norwich won. doesn't happen very often these days with Norwich, but I think they won 2-0. And I enjoyed it in a way, but it wasn't the same. But it's just, just a game of football. It's fun to watch. It's a good experience. It's just 22 men kicking a ball around on a field. It's not what really makes me happy. I can't really get into it in the same way. Another example, when I was a bit younger, I had a, an interest in politics. And I never really got involved in, in any political movement, but I was interested and I, I thought it was important and I cared about it. And, you know, for a while I, I read a lot of stuff and I was interested, but after a while I just thought to myself, well, this is important, I can see why it's important to people, but it's not, it's not really that important in the scheme of things. Yes, Christians should be involved in politics, if they're called to that. Yes, there's an important job to do. Yes, we should pray for our politicians. Yes, we should care about these matters because people's lives are affected by this and our lives are affected. But you know what? I'm not going to get too involved in it. My heart's not going to be fully immersed in it because at the end of the day, my, my God sits on his throne. He's in control and this is passing away. Be involved if you want to be, but don't be too involved. Don't make politics your God. Don't make football your God. Don't make your relationship your God. Don't make your career your God. Don't make your, your family, your grandchildren your God. Don't make your allotment your God. Don't make your hobby your God. Enjoy these things if they're right, but don't get too engrossed in them. Then Paul says something about possessions. He says this, doesn't he? Verse 30, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. As I've already mentioned, buying and selling is part of life. You try living without buying stuff. I think it's probably good for us to ask the question, are we really, is it really necessary what we're buying sometimes? Can we live without this? We have an abundance of material possessions in the West. Christians can legitimately buy things which are not strictly necessary. It's not wrong to buy a hoover or an electric toothbrush or a pillow or a fishing rod or a car or a house or land. If you have the means to buy it and if you feel that it would help you in your life and you're not getting into debt, then there's no reason why you shouldn't buy things. God gives everything richly for our enjoyment. Everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. And you can use those things to bless other people. Although I'm not quite sure how you could use a hoover or a fishing rod to bless other people. But Jesus warns, doesn't he? A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus warns us very starkly about greed, about the place that possessions have in our hearts, the accumulation of stuff. Let me give you a stark, very blunt truth. Sooner or later, probably sooner, you will be parted from your hard-earned possessions. Either persecution will come, which means that you have to make a choice between serving the Lord and obeying the Lord, 
and honouring the Lord or your nice possessions and your comfortable life. Or you will die like the man in the story, the parable, the rich fool who stored up things to himself but was not rich towards God. And then God says, this, you know, you fool tonight, your, your life will be demanded from you and it, you will leave it to somebody else. Or the Lord Jesus will come back and none of this will really matter, will it? It won't matter what kind of house you had, what kind of car you had, what kind of clothes you had. The question is, where is our real treasure stored up? Is it here or is it in heaven? The writer of Hebrews talks about Christians who have been persecuted. And he says this, you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Hebrews 10 verse 34. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is the Christian reality we have Better and lasting possessions. None of this stuff is bad, but none of it is ours to keep. None of it should possess our hearts. None of it should become an idol. All of it's going to be taken away. Enjoy it to an extent, but don't become totally enamoured with it to the point that you actually idolise your possessions the stuff that money can buy, which can easily be taken away. Christians should hold on to things lightly. Whatever it might be, whatever human activity there is, whatever possession there is, we should hold on to it lightly because we know that we have lasting and better possessions. In, you know, in other words, we have treasure in heaven. We have a great reward which will come to us when this world passes away. And finally, the last point, and this is a bit of a you know, cover-all kind of point that Paul makes in verse 31. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. Paul, he's talked about specific examples. Now he talks about any sphere of human activity, any kind of thing that you could mention. The things of this world, the things that belong to this present world but will not last into eternity. It doesn't say stop using these things. Use the facilities this world has to offer. But don't become engrossed in them. Don't become entangled by them. What does being engrossed mean? It means becoming completely absorbed by something, completely caught up in something. I don't know if you've ever, you've ever been walking in the countryside. I remember as a small boy, about six years old, going on these long country walks. And obviously when you're quite short, going for a patch of nettles is like going for a jungle. I remember walking in the fields and coming across great big patches of brambles. And you can imagine if you fell into a pit of brambles, a great big clump of brambles with their sharp thorns, you could easily become completely entangled it would be very difficult to, to draw you out, to rescue you from that, unless, of course, you had a machete or something like that to cut away the brambles. But the Bible does warn Christians about being entangled in this world. And there are people, there are Christians, maybe even some who are listening to this, who are in danger, perhaps, perhaps even I'm in danger, of being entangled by the things of this world. 
engrossed in the things of this world to the extent that all our attention, our emotional energy is being poured into this stuff. We've lost sight of the fact that this world is passing away. Is there anything in your life, there may not be, but there may be, which is worldly, which has entangled you, which you find it very difficult to extract yourself from? Do you find, you know, you may be well-meaning and want to get out of it, but it's completely enveloped you to the point that you cannot be focused on serving the Lord. You cannot be focused properly on his coming and on the kingdom. You speak to Christians, professing Christians sometimes, and when you talk to people, you find out what really excites them, what their passions really are. I've I've sat there talking to Christians, and I'm not suggesting that I'm perfect in this area because I'm not, but the stuff they wax lyrical about, the things that really seem to excite them are not the things of the kingdom. Not terribly bothered about belonging to a biblical church or praying or reading the word. They might go through the motions of these things, but when you get them on, on their hobby or their holidays or the world cruise or their career or their relationship or whatever it might be, they can't stop talking about it with joy and their eyes shining. Because in a way, that thing appears to have really taken over their hearts. Dear friends, all of us need to be careful of this. You know, when when these people wax lyrical, they talk at great length with excitement and enthusiasm about the things of this passing world. You think, where is God in all this? What would happen if if this crisis... This coronavirus would lead to a complete taking away of Christian freedom. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but what if it did? What if it led to ultimately to persecution of Christians? Would you be would you be prepared for that? Would you be prepared to give up these things that have so encaptured, captured your heart, enraptured you, enchanted you? true Christian may enjoy these things as well, but he says, you know, if I have to give it up, so be it. Because the reason I live is not to please myself in this world, but to please my Lord Jesus, to build his kingdom, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and to press on towards the goal to my heavenly reward. Dear friends, we don't know where this present crisis will lead us. That's true for us as a church, as individuals, and as a world. We don't know. God knows. But this is a good time to ask that question. What am I living for? Where is my heart? What are my priorities? What's really important to me? And if it's really important, am I giving myself to that cause. One thing we do know is this. The time is short. We don't know how long till the Lord Jesus comes again, but the Bible, I believe, would have us live in this state of expectation. Don't stop living in this world. Don't stop engaging with it. Don't stop going to work. It's a challenge, isn't it, when we're so busy with legitimate things. Simplify your life. 
Get rid of things that entangle you and just take away your energy for serving the Lord. Unnecessary things. And in those necessary things, putting food on the table, paying bills, keep your spiritual focus. Remember, it's all going to pass away. This world is like an illusion, like a dream. One day we will be with our king face to face. Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I hope that was helpful, and I hope that's at least raised some, something to think about today. But let's, let's pray, and then we'll sing our final hymn. Dear Lord, I pray that you would forgive us if we've become too enraptured by this world. We pray that you'd forgive us if we have used the things of this world as though they were ours to keep. We've, we've made idols of things that we shouldn't have made idols of. Even if we haven't done that, we pray that we would never do that. We'll never get too at home in this world. We pray that we would we'll be very useful in this world. We would be good citizens and we would be good husbands and wives or good servants, brothers and sisters, good colleagues and good workmates and good employers and employees. But we pray, Lord, that we would always have on our shoulders that sense of heaven, that sense that the Lord Jesus is coming back and we need to be ready for him. However long that takes, Please keep us, Lord, in this present crisis. Keep us walking with you. Keep us focused, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Chosen a final hymn which talks about my possessions, my true possessions lying in the promised land. A picture of heaven. This is where my true treasure lies. So we will sing together on Jordan's stormy banks, I stand. May the Lord bless you.